Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the Governor's Office and State Politics Reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at the Arizona Capitol Bureau are... Ron Hansen, I cover the Congressional Delegation. Ryan Randazzo, I'm a business reporter. Dustin Gardner, I cover the state legislature. This week on The Gaggle, the governor, in a sharp policy reversal, wants the State Department of Revenue to rehire about 25 taxmen. Paul Gosar is facing backlash after some comments he made about who should be arrested at the State of the Union address. But first, former Representative Don Shooter, once the most powerful, or at least one of the most powerful lawmakers at the state capitol, was epically removed from office by his peers. And he didn't go quietly. In fact, he literally dropped the mic. What was going on behind the scenes with that historic vote and what comes next? Dustin, you've been reporting about these allegations of sexual harassment at the state uh, capitol, which culminated in a report released last week that found Representative Shooter indeed engaged in a pattern of sexual harassment over many years. Take us inside the House of Representative chambers in the hours leading up to the expulsion vote. So initially when the report came out, Speaker J.D. Mesnard had said that he was only going to push to censure Shooter. Um, there were others in the chamber, notably um, House Majority Whip Kelly Townsend, who insisted that he must be removed. But up until Thursday morning, um, Mesnard was still pushing for a censure. But then in, in the early hours Thursday, um, Shooter sent out a letter to all of his House colleagues, basically questioning the veracity of, of the report and asserting that a portion had been left out about another lawmaker who had harassed someone. Um, and it, or basically he said that there wasn't the, the full information of that and, and the name of that lawmaker should have been released, though it was alluded to in the report. Um, after that was released, Mesnard changed his tune and um, introduced a resolution to immediately oust Shooter. Um, as that was going on, there was also a lot of drama in the halls of the House building. Um, Shooter was said to be going office to office, making comments along the lines of, this is a good day for a lynching, this is a good day for a hanging. That made people incredibly uncomfortable. Um, Michelle Ugenti Rita, the representative who was the first woman to publi publicly accuse Shooter of harassment, felt threatened by that. Um, that led uh, Mesnard, accompanied by a DPS officer, to go to Shooter's office and physically remove uh, firearms that were in his possession. So overall, it was just an incredibly dramatic scene leading up to the vote. To Shooter's credit, or trying to explain maybe Shooter's humor, sense of humor, um, there were a lot of other people who took his remark about it's a good day for a hanging as kind of gallows humor and that he was probably talking about himself. And that seems to be the spirit in which he intended the remark to be um, taken as. But, you know, clearly uh, after his letter, sounds like Speaker Mesnard came in pretty hot and was like, look, you you still don't get it. You know, you can have a sense of humor but not here. Like, you still don't understand the ramifications of your behavior. And it sounds like that ultimately led to his decision to tweak the language of the resolution that he was going to use to censure um, Mr. Shooter and instead ask for it, for it to be uh, substituted with expulsion. Do you have any sort of sense as to whether or not there really was a true public safety threat yeah. So a after the vote, Mesnard was was questioned about this, and you know he said that 
while it might not have been intended as a threat against Eugenti Rita, the fact that Shooter was going around making those sorts of comments after Mesnard had warned him earlier in the week that he would push for expulsion if, um, if his kind of inappropriate behavior continued. Mesnard just saw that, you know, as an indication that Shooter, you know, wasn't really ready to change, I think. Um, and, you know, basically Mesnard said it, it might not have been an, an intentional threat, but the fact that he was comfortable still making those sorts of comments just speaks to, you know, his overall behavior and why he wouldn't be fit for the House. What did Shooter have to say for himself? Before, as the vote was beginning, um, the vote of expulsion was beginning, Shooter jumped up and said, hey, I put in a request to speak. Mesnard gave him a chance to speak. He gave, you know, just kind of a, a brief um, sort of farewell speech. I mean, he might have had a slight hope that he could have stayed in the chamber but he, he basically said, you know, I, the, the facts speak for themselves. Some accusations against me were false. Others I've apologized for, you know, but it, he was basically standing his ground up until the last minute. Um, and then, you know, as, as you alluded to, he very dramatically dropped the mic down to his desk and walked out of the chambers and security escorted him out of the building. It was funny because during his floor speech, he talked a lot about how, yeah, he'd acted wrong in some regards. But he stood there on that carpet and he took it like a man. But when it came time for him to face the music and face his peers on this vote, he didn't take it like a man. He he left the building and left the premises. That to me was was interesting, especially for a guy who is, you know, just so defiant about what has been going on over the last couple of weeks, um, specifically with allegations involving Representative Eugenie Rita. Yeah, and he did say, as you know, as he, as he was wrapping up his comments, he said, "I hope I don't lose by one vote." Um, and you know, it, even though he said that, he seemed to see the writing on the wall that it was all over with the speaker and you know other Republicans pushing against him. The floor speeches uh, ranged from kind of dispassionate, brief remarks to tears to Representative. Anthony Kern of Glendale calling for an outright full investigation into another set of controversial allegations involving um, other Capitol insiders. Was there any particular speech or speeches that stuck with you that you that you think will be remembered? There were many memorable comments on the floor. Um, one that really stood out to me was uh, Representative Leela Alston, probably the longest serving member of the legislature currently. Um, she said that this, the vote was on par with two other difficult votes she'd made, one of the three most difficult votes she's made in many years at the Capitol. And it, she said that one of those instances it was on par with was the impeachment of Governor um, Evan Meekum. And, th and then beyond Alston, there was also some very interesting comments from um, Representative Becky Nutt, a Republican, who, you know, she was in tears as she stood up and basically said, you know, you guys need to knock it off. She was looking at her male colleagues, Republican male colleagues in the legislature and saying, you know, we, this is unacceptable. You know, children come to the legislature. We're supposed to be an example and you guys need to knock it off. And then it was also a very um, passionate comment from Representative Athena Salman, a uh, Democrat. She was one of the women who also accused Shooter of making inappropriate comments. And she was very emotional when she got up and thanked Eugenti Rita for being the first person to come forward and having the courage to accuse Shooter publicly. And optics-wise, you know, for people who were trying to watch this uh, either on AZ uh, Ledge or AZ Central or on Twitter, um, you, you saw a sea of red. So expulsion day happened to coincide with um, 
an awareness day, cardiovascular awareness day. Um, so all these women dressed in red, there was some speculation that that was to be in support of some of the victims. Yeah, that was a common misconception on Twitter. We had several people um, ask on Twitter why everyone was seemed to be wearing red, but it was completely unrelated to um, the vote to expel shooter. It was not related to a handmaiden's tale or anything else. It was Heart Health Awareness Day. So what happens next? Is this tie this controversy up into a nice, neat knot? Is everyone going to move on? I think that remains to be seen. You know, there's still changes um, in, in the works in the chamber. Mesnard has pushed for the chamber to adopt a code of conduct. I think there's, it sounds like there's a lot of wrangling behind the scenes about what all will be included in that. Is it going to mention sexual harassment? And how detailed is it going to be? Is it going to prohibit alcohol, as he suggested? Um, and then I think you know, a lot of members in the chamber, particularly women, are just hoping this isn't the end of the conversation. There's been rumblings about issues with other lawmakers for a long time. Um, and Mesnard did say that anyone who experienced harassment should feel comfortable coming forward. So I think we'll see whether um, the, cha the chamber continues to have a serious conversation about this. Wasn't there a, a proposal from uh, Kelly Townsend uh, related to, to some of the things that happened at the end of that? Yeah, it seems to me she actually either intentionally or unintentionally may be prolonging this conversation. She introduced a bill this week that would require photographs, explicit photographs gathered as part of this investigation to be um, kept confidential and to not be turned over to the public as uh, part of uh, requests that have been filed by media outlets under the state's public records law. She uh, contends that, you know, the, the person or persons who are in the photographs uh, have a right to privacy. And uh, she also seems to be suggesting that perhaps people with the House of Representatives who were on the investigative team might not have necessarily needed to see the photographs. And uh, she seems to be raising questions as to whether or not, um, you know, the photo or photos were bandied about for... Um, purposes other than maybe investigative. And the House of Representatives spokesman did say that seven people from the House were on that investigative team. He declined to say which of the staffers saw the photo or photos in question. Uh, I will say, to tie this up in a nice, neat little knot, uh, Representative Shooter seems to be you know, okay, at least in the hours after the expulsion, uh, I was getting phone calls from him late into the night, and he seemed to be um, the old Don shooter, happy, little inebriated, and his parting word to me, words to me were, I'll be okay, I've been thrown out of better places. Governor Doug Ducey, in a sharp policy reversal, wants the State Department of Revenue to rehire 25 tax collectors after the agency lost about $83 million in audit revenue. So these are the people who would try to get money from individuals and businesses that didn't pay their taxes, right? Correct. 
And this move comes after the governor's administration orchestrated essentially what would amount to a mass firing of these people um, a couple of years ago. Correct. They cut about 130 positions since Mr. Ducey came into office. And uh, they are learning that if you don't have auditors, that you don't collect as much uh, revenue. So now they would like to hire 25 people back, and they project that by hiring 25 folks, they can increase revenue by about $30 million. Each, each auditor takes in about $1 to $2 million uh, a year, depending on who or what they're auditing. So is the governor's administration acknowledging that this is, that, that maybe it was a mistake to fire these people? They do not acknowledge it was a mistake, but it is a uh, full-fledged backtrack. Um, they chose to point this out when they briefed us on their budget, um, so it's not something that they tucked away. Uh, they don't use the word mistake, but they do realize that um, these people generate revenue. And I think it's important to point out that they are not hiring all of them back or even nearly all of them. They're hiring 20, a pretty conservative uh, number of folks. How much money do they bring in individually? Like a million? To... It, it, yeah, it depends on if they're doing uh, personal taxes or uh, corporate taxes, but it's uh, on average one to two million dollars each per year. And when they cut uh, folks, in 2016, the, the revenue decline was about $80 million from one year to the next. So it was a significant drop for the state. So we're not talking peanuts here. Do you do you have a sense as to why it took two years for them to come to this realization? I mean, your very first story on this matter back in June 2016, you quoted the governor's spokesman as saying uh, about the firings, look, we're, we are not concerned about collections. So what has changed? Well, it takes some time before you realize the impact. And uh, uh, to be fair, there were economists who were warning that this would uh, have a pretty significant impact on, on the state budget. And the, when those warnings uh, came to pass, I think they realized that it was probably worth the investment to hire some, some people back. Is there any sort of possibility that the governor's administration miscalculated, excuse me, the, the governor's office, miscalculated or underestimated the impact that these firings would have on state revenues? Well, it's, it's hard to know exactly where their heads were at on this, but going back two years, they kept mentioning that they were moving into, you know, moving into the future and they were going to use more technology to replace what people had done in the past. And they are also increasing this, uh, their investment in a, in a technology platform that they didn't explain too detailed, but it, it basically looks at credit card transactions and allows them to target their audits um, towards enterprises that they predict are not paying their full amount. So maybe two years ago, they thought that that system was going to bring in more than it actually did. And that's why they felt comfortable um, shedding people. But they're investing in both now. I think Ron has maybe some insight on that as well. Well, one thing that occurs to me is that I, I think one thing they may not have calculated or, or fully um, appreciated at the time is the overall economic conditions that this would be playing out against. And so we've had uh, uh, just different um, tax changes now at the federal level. The economy is in a different place. I think the um, the state's corporate income tax cuts that they passed in 2011 have also uh, continued to come into full flower. When you look at it, I think the revenue picture for the state turned out to be a little below what they might have anticipated as well. And when you look at um, just the volatility in, in various uh, revenue buckets, this is something that left the state 
um, with even thinner margins than they might have expected even a year ago. When you do that, even relatively modest numbers start to become big ones. So an $80 million shortfall um, in a budget that began the year with so little uh, to be left over under their optimistic scenarios in the spring, um, it just left them with no more uh, budget space to make up for any shortfall of any kind. This is, uh, this is a U-turn forced on them by the revenue picture that continued to deteriorate against reality. One of the questions I've had about this issue since it kind of first bubbled up is very specifically, who benefits from this? Is there a way for the public to see, I don't know, which people or what businesses are failing to properly pay their taxes? Um, we are hearing from Ducey's political rivals that he wants to give his, you know, billionaire slash millionaire corporate donor buddies um, these tax breaks. But is there really truly a way for us to figure out who has who has gotten off scot-free because of this decision? Not really. I mean, uh, tax laws uh, uh, have the same kind of confidentiality in Arizona that they do at the federal level. So you're not going to be able to see any particular taxpayers' returns or know about it. There are things that can uh, end up in tax court, for example, that might be public record. And there may be certain uh, tax credits and such that suggest who the universe of possibilities might be that, that have any kind of significant movement. But by and large, no, we won't know that. One thing, though, that is important, especially on the corporate side, corporate auditing side, is that any given account has the potential to be, you know, huge just based on who that uh, that client might be. So if you are the person uh, auditing uh, a family in Peoria, you might get uh, some money back uh, counted in the thousands of dollars if you if they've been short on their taxes. But if you audit some business in Scottsdale, you could be looking at tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, depending on who they might be. So the the corporate auditing in particular just presents a very different revenue stream to the state. And a certain someone raised the alarm bells on this a couple of years ago when the governor uh, governor's office was first talking about it. Yeah, interestingly, uh, one of the people who was alarmed by the move to cut auditors and uh, deeply concerned was Don Shooter, who uh, was chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And when the Republic told him about the cuts, because apparently they had not been communicated from the governor's office or Department of Revenue, he was not very pleased back in 2016 to hear that news. Representative uh, Paul Gosar called for Dreamers attending President Trump's State of the Union speech to be arrested. In response, Democrats fire, fired back uh, earlier this week. This is yet another high-profile battle with this uh, with this representative and his ideological opponents. Um, what 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 is he thinking on on this? Uh, idea here. Well, I, my guess would be that this is really good politics back home. <laughs> that's that's uh, my first guess. Look, uh, Congressman Gosar represents one of the most conservative uh, districts in Arizona. 
this is a, a place where um, getting tough on immigration is good for him. Uh, his constituents clearly want uh, a hardliner approach. He has staked out that kind of position for years. This is just continuing that in many ways and, and sort of amping it up to a new level uh, by hitching on to the president's coattails ahead of the State of the Union speech. It's a nice way to draw attention to uh, the views that, that he has and, and finding a wide audience for it. It is. Does he really think, though, that these dreamers should be, I mean, do you really believe that he thinks that dreamers should be arrested? Or is he is he playing the Trump card, so to speak? Like, I don't, he's a four-term lawmaker. I don't recall him acting like this before Trump took office. Um, you know, it's an interesting question, and, and we'd have to dig through his remarks to see how those have evolved over the years. But the fact is that the Congressman Gosar has has always been sort of one of the more um, uh, rigid, ideologically driven members in our delegation. He is a member of the Freedom Caucus in the House. Uh, he has taken a number of, of pretty hardline stances over the years. This may be the most bellicose. It may be uh, especially in politic, given the circumstances that it was supposed to play out on. But I don't know that it's really out of line with some of the views that he's already taken in, in the recent years or so. You know, think back to last fall, shortly after the Charlottesville uh, uh, violence last year, uh, Paul Gosar, in an interview with Vice News, um, sort of intimated that um, liberal uh, donor and activist uh, George Soros may have been a Nazi collaborator as a boy. So he is not above throwing some pretty incendiary remarks into the public square and seeing what happens. This one is just the latest one of them. This is a, a man who has gone to uh, battle with his constituents over whether or not he can have them on his Facebook page. So Paul, Paul Gosar does not shrink from controversy, and, and um, I think at, at worst he's only testing where the bounds may exist. Well, and some, I would think, are taking issue maybe privately um, about his behavior. I can't imagine that, you know, the governor and others who are really working to reshape the state's image uh, are, are okay with uh, Gosar's, you know, activities. This does seem to reinforce some of the discriminatory and hardline attitudes that they have been trying to shed in the wake of, you know, the immigration 1070 bill and the religious freedom 1062 bill, um, this probably will put us back on Stephen Colbert. It, it might, but, you know, the, the thing is, is uh, we saw Senator Jeff Flake weigh in last week after uh, Paul Gosar's remarks uh, urging arrests and, and removals. Uh, Senator Flake noted this is why we can't have nice things, which is a relatively delicate way of putting all of this. And, and Paul Gosar's response was to say, this is why you, you're being drummed out of office, essentially. So again, this is somebody who is unafraid of confrontation. I should add that um, Paul Gosar was also seriously weighing a Senate run of his own last fall when, Paul, when uh, Jeff Flake was announcing that he wouldn't run for a second term. So 
Paul Gosar is looking at his own political future as well. And right now, especially in a Republican primary environment, if there were to be another Senate race anytime soon, um, Paul Gosar may want to be staking out the most conservative flank in the in the Republican primary. Um, just an interesting little tangent to all this. Um, his guest at the State of the Union was Secretary of State Michelle Reagan, and that led to some fallout um, in the Secretary of State's race. Her opponent, Katie Hobbs, um, sent a, a tweet just kind of ripping into Reagan for being his guest in, in the wake of those comments. segment who hasn't called you back this week this seems to have had an effect last week every single one of us heard from uh people we were waiting no not me oh no. okay well three out of four all right ron who haven't you heard from uh i would like to talk to paul gosar obviously he's a man in the news again and and after all these remarks and skirmishes that he uh seems to find himself in I, i'd love to hear more about it and how he thinks this is uh, furthering what he sees is the the right thing to do so Dr. Gosar, give me a ring. Well, I've had some time to think about it since we did the video for the gaggle. And actually, the Corporation Commission has not answered a public records request that I filed about a month ago. And I was requesting some pretty basic documents that should have been posted online a year ago as part of their uh, debate over um, some water companies fighting over territories. So... It would be great if they could dig up that document and uh, send it my way. Senator Nancy Bartow has not called me back about her abortion bill, the only controversial abortion bill so far this year, so call me back. And I'm still waiting to hear from Representative Michelle Eugenti-Rita and lobbyist Brian Townsend about the investigative report here at, at the state capitol. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can reach me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. And I am at Utility Reporter. I'm at Dustin Gardner, and that's G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Carly Henry. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week. Bye.